Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Kevin McCarthy has secured the speakership. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we attempt to look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck, your other host. Welcome back. God, last week was exhausting, and now here we are to cover the aftermath and what it all means uh, for going forward. Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, I have never seen anything like that, uh, but he had to do a lot to get there, so we're going to dig into that. The rules package, the concessions he had to make to Freedom Caucus members. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the debt limit, which I think is going to be probably the most challenging uh, and the biggest conflict we're going to see in the next year. Um, and because I know all of you love this process stuff, uh, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into something called the discharge petition, which is where a lot of conversation is is driving in terms of how they're going to increase the debt limit at some point. So we'll talk through how that works and why it may not be the best approach if you're hoping to uh, increase uh, the debt limit and avoid economic catastrophe. Um, but before we do that, I just have to say, I, I've been in politics for a time. I worked in the House for a long time. The drama we saw on Friday night was insane. I, I the, the standoff with Matt Gates, the, the stopping the motion to adjourn at the last minute, I was slack-jawed. I'm very glad that they got that resolved. I don't think I could have gone through another week of, of what that was last week. I think we did a pretty good job predicting what was going to happen, but it was still just insane. I don't know. What, what, what was your uh, your reaction to what you saw last week? Yeah, absolutely the same. I mean, I've, I've never seen anything like it either. Um, you know, I think everybody in, in D.C. had a really late Friday night. Um, everybody was just like glued to the TV. Um, I know we talked about this in all of these different scenarios, and we did do a good job in predicting, you know, that this would go into second ballot, third ballot. I mean, I don't think that I thought it was even going to go to 15 uh, votes. I mean, there was a period there uh, where I think I can safely say a lot of McCarthy people were were pretty down on the fact or the idea that he was actually going to get there. I mean, that was when the whatever it was, 13 or so of them flipped on that uh, that one vote after the whatever deal they came up with. I mean, obviously that was that was a game changer, but I think that caught even them off guard that that many people were coming because there was definitely a point, you know, around Thursday where there was some question like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do it. Yeah, um, that was a huge momentum shift. Yeah. So uh, again, glad <laughs> glad that's over, um, but it certainly came came with a price. Yeah, I'm, and last episode too, I mentioned uh, Robert Adderhold and you know some of the other rank and file members that were likely perturbed by the McCarthy concessions uh, to the far right conference. And I think I should have, as you mentioned, uh, the Matt Gates standoff, been a little bit more concerned with another Alabama congressman oh, yeah. with a gavel. There was almost a fight. I forgot about that. Yeah, maybe it wasn't a fight. I think Richard Hudson, like the the maybe awkward overreacted. awkward grabbing him of the mouth, was a little weird, but. Um, yeah, I mean, just just pure pure uh, drama. Certainly, C-SPAN camera entertainment. Yeah. So let me. A lot of misunderstanding of the C-SPAN camera thing. Um, a lot of people saying 
that we had all those extra shots because there were no rules in the house. That's not how it works. Um, the the way this typically works is that the cameras that you see normally on C-SPAN are uh, controlled by the house. Um, it's like state-run media, basically. Um, but for special events, the media organizations come to the speaker's office and say, can we put extra cameras in there? And so they would do, typically do that for an opening session. They'll do it for State of the Union. Um, and so it's really at the discretion of the speaker whether there are those those cameras in there. So it wasn't because the rules weren't in place. If we want, they don't need to do anything in the rules if they want to keep it like that. Um, it would just require the speaker kind of giving permission to put all those extra cameras in there. The reason they don't usually allow that is frankly because members don't like it. And you've seen a bunch of members say that they would love to keep the cameras like that because they liked the drama. I'm sure Matt Gates loved being on TV. Um, but generally, they don't want to have everybody looking at every little conversation they're having and like feeling like eyes are on them at all times. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but just that's where it comes from. Members don't want that generally. They want to feel like the floor is a bit of a safe space. They can talk whoever they want. They can have little side conversations. They can talk to Democrats and nobody's going to give them a hard time. If you're a Republican, you know. Vice yeah. versa. I was kind of struck by the amount of floor time that all of these members were getting, um, you know, after we went through COVID and proxy voting and proxy committee uh, hearings, you know, it, it, it was interesting to just see the Republicans and the Democrats on the floor for that amount of time together, just like physically locked in a room together, locked in the chamber, like interacting with each other. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it wasn't a super spreader event. I haven't heard anything. So a lot of people were just kind of saying after, you know, and a, a lot of people meaning Republicans were saying that this was, you know, democracy playing out. This was a healthy debate. Um, I think that's a pretty monumental spin, and I'm not really sure who's buying that, uh, what they're selling there. But, um, you know, bringing us around a little bit to the rules package that we'll get into just kind of briefly. I know Tom Emmer, the GOP whip, was saying that the rules package deal was going to make McCarthy the, quote, strongest speaker in modern times. Uh, yeah. Um, so that's good spin, too. Maybe it's not a good spin. Um, you know, look, I no, I don't think that's a fair, a fair thing to say. Um, just by nature of having a small majority, it, it's going to be tough to be uh, a strong speaker. What I think he's trying to get at is that this rules package is designed, uh, maybe not intentionally, but ultimately through negotiation, is designed to empower the rank and file. Um, everything about these negotiations was how do you decentralize the leadership authority? Uh, I would call it weakening the speaker. Um, but I guess you could spin it that giving members uh, some skin in the game on the process will make the house function better. That, I don't argue with that in theory. What I argue with that is in practice. Um, uh, handing over control to members, uh, whether it's amendments or what bills can be brought up, um, some of these other restrictions that were, that were put in place, um, works if you have a house uh, that, or a majority that is interested in being serious legislators. And that's where I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure that's gonna work out. You know, if you're opening up the floor to um, any amendment, um, you gotta make sure that, you know, you're willing to compromise, that you're willing to accept things that, um, you know, maybe an amendment gets adopted and you don't like that, but you still are willing to pass the bill anyway. Um, when open amendment processes uh, were in place previously, 
they typically just led to a bunch of poison pill amendments that took down bills and we couldn't get anything done. So um, we'll see how that works. We'll see how much members actually feel empowered and how much they want to, um, you know, uh, stick by the speaker because they feel like they got something from him. Uh, that's a big, big open question. But I, I do think that, you know, the reality is, is Kevin McCarthy starting um, from a tough spot with, um, you know, a bunch of the rules that were adopted that I think, again, were designed to to weaken him. Yeah. So let's take a look at some of these measures. Um, you know, these passed like much less fanfare. The rules are about 55 pages long. There weren't a lot of changes from the rules package that was, you know, previously before the holidays uh, submitted to members. The big change, which I think goes back to this question of the strength of the speaker and, you know, kudos to Brendan, who has been sort of waving the flag for the motion to vacate since day one. Um, but they changed the threshold from five to one member, which I think, um, you know, if you, yeah, if you have a bunch of serious legislators, that's a, that's kind of a different story. But if you have someone who, who decides that they want to capitalize on an opportunity for relevancy, you know, they can go down this path and it can be, you know, disastrous pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, it felt inevitable that the threshold was going to be brought down to one member. I mean, again, to recap, it used to when when I was there, Bader and Ryan, we had the the one member could bring up the motion to kick out the speaker at any time. Um, Pelosi changed it so that um, only the majority or minority leader could actually pull that trigger. Um, and McCarthy said he wasn't going to give on that. Um, he eventually offered to go to five and then back down to one where it was previously under Republican speakerships. Again, just feels like, you know, there was really no way he was going to get the gavel without having to go there. And so, you know, you can look at it as a huge fold or you can look at it as like, that's just the reality. Um, but just a terrible way to live. I mean, being speaker and having any one member be able to, to pull this trigger and, and, and trigger a vote on the floor to kick you out. I mean, the whims of anybody who doesn't like what you do. I do think it's an interesting open question. And I, I post this on Twitter and, you know, I, I, I welcome people's feedback on this is like, I don't know what Democrats would do. Like, you know, to actually remove a speaker, you need 218 votes. And I would presume that most Republicans wouldn't actually vote to remove Kevin McCarthy. It's probably, you know, some group or subset of this, this 20 that stopped him in the first place. But if they think he violated some promise, say 15 Republicans, vote to remove him um that doesn't remove him unless every democrat is gonna vote for it too and i just don't know whether they would um so it's not maybe he won't be removed by a motion to vacate but maybe he ends up getting saved by democrats and this will sound silly to some people but like that is really damaging for a speaker as well when the minority is what saves you from your job if like you're a speaker because of democrats I can just tell you the dynamics um, and the power structures in the House Republican conference will be such that you would be pretty badly wounded. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying he would resign, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, it's it's tough to come back from. Well, that's where I was, exactly where I was going to go with this. Um, you know, obviously, when some of these things are threatened, even if they're not brought to the floor for a vote, if there are enough members threatening a vote on a motion to vacate the chair against a speaker. I mean, the conference can lose faith in the speakership. And, you know, that's not exactly what happened uh, with Boehner's resignation, but, you know, certainly part of it um, in 15. Yeah, I mean, he so Boehner stepped down. And, and I think the I was with Paul Ryan by then. But I mean, I think that I think the sense in this the Boehner office at the time was that 
um, he could have survived that that vote. That you know, he. I mean, and he had people coming to him and saying, "I I will vote for you. Like it will be super unpopular, but I'm going to stick by you." There's there's this thing about whether Demo- what Democrats would have done. I don't know. You know, if Demo- what Democrats had suggested they would do on that vote. So I, I think he could have, would have survived that vote if it happened. What Boehner, I think, came to the conclusion was is just like he's no longer unifying the conference, and when you're no longer unifying the conference, then then like it's hard hard to lead. And just thought, you know what, I've had a good run. It's time for somebody else to to slide in. Um, thought it was Kevin McCarthy, but I guess I had to wait seven or eight years for that. Here so we are now. Here, here we are now. Got there eventually. <laughs> Um, well, we're not going to go through each of these rules. I mean, some of them are not particularly important. There's a lot in there. Um, but just a, a couple, you know, we're bringing back this 72 hours to review legislation. Um, we're going to give shorter voting times uh, for recorded votes in proxy voting, remote committee hearings for lawmakers. Um, and they're also sort of pushing this bills must come with a statement of a single purpose. Which is pretty dumb. Um like, I don't know how that's enforced. I mean, one person's single issue bill is another person's Christmas tree, you know, like the Inflation Reduction Act, which covered a, a million things that could be like, this is an, an economy bill. So I don't know right. how that's going to be enforced. That feels more just sort of like a vague promise that is just, you know, begging to be broken. But who knows? I don't, I don't know how they would enforce that. I think, I think the idea is they would enforce it through some type of, it's more about amendments and things needing to be germane. Um, but it's just the kind of... I don't know. I'm, I'm so cynical, but it's just kind of like the silly bumper sticker politics stuff that sounds good. Like, why are we considering more than one thing in one bill? But like in practice, like it makes sense all the time to combine things. Right. Um, but it's it's written flexibly enough that, you know, it is kind of hard to nail down what the meaning is and, and how to abide by it. Um, but one thing, I mean, we've talked about the 72 hour rule and some of these other rules. Um, some of them are not new. Some of them are just kind of things that always flip over when, you know, Republicans take over from Democrats in the House. Um but the 72-hour rule is something that gets it was previously enacted but was waived a lot. So the way that it would be, um, you know, waived is that when the Rules Committee would consider it, it would, um, you know, they would they would waive this in the rule and then bring the bill to the floor so that you wouldn't actually have that 72-hour requirement. Um, I bring that up because I think it's interesting that if we do end up having, you know, three House Freedom Caucus members on the rules committee, um, as as folks are talking about now, and with this really tight margin in the House, I just think you know we are gonna we're gonna see these rules m- much more adhered to, I guess I'll say, than than in previous Congresses. Yeah, and to just like break it back down for the people again, the rules committee is you know how you bring a bill to the floor, and uh, they they pass out what we call a rule. Um, and in that rule, a lot of times it just kind of sets the terms of debate. Like you said, Annalise, they will sometimes waive House rules when they say, we're going to consider this bill. And in doing so, we're going to ignore the 72-hour requirement because we're in a hurry and we just don't have time for that. And, you know, it's usually no big deal. They, they do that kind of stuff somewhat regularly. But if Kevin McCarthy is stacking the Freedom Caucus, or st- stacking the Rules Committee with Freedom Caucus members and they have enough and we did the math on the last episode, if, if it's usually a nine to four margin on the Rules Committee, three of those Republicans are, uh, are, are, are Freedom Caucus members, and they don't want to waive that rule, or they don't want to waive whatever rule. Um, Democrats always vote no. The minority always votes no in the Rules Committee. They could block a rule, which means a bill can't come up to the floor. So if Kevin McCarthy says, sorry, like we're in a rush, we need to get this bill on the floor, I'm sorry it hasn't been 72 hours, but we got to do it, 
three Freedom Caucus members could say, eh, nope, we're going to stick by the rule, can't bring it up. Um, so just something to keep an eye on. There's a lot of conversation about like, ah, well, they'll just they'll just waive those rules if it's a problem. Yes, that is still possible, but you have... Might be harder than it's been in the yeah, past. Yeah, you've completely changed how the House operates when you are no longer in control of the Rules Committee when you're the Speaker, and that extends to lots of different things. But this is just another example of how the Speaker is not quite in as much control as he, as he once was. Right. Um, so our rules package conversation wouldn't be complete without a mention of this secret three-page addendum, which um, many people are asking, many people are we looking. We have it. No, actually, we don't. <laughs> Wish we had it. Um, so most people are saying it doesn't exist, um, but allegedly it uh, places two to three Freedom Caucus members on the Rules Committee, has a debt limit strategy, freezing spending levels to 2022, um, and of course, committee assignments, which you know we're already kind of playing out this week. So we're tracking all of that. Um, but I think it kind of leads us into like our big topic for the day, um, and, it, and it's you know around budget. And, you know, it, it is it has been interesting to see the concessions uh, that McCarthy has been pushing forward in in his effort to rein in the budget, uh, in particular, at the recent GOP conference meeting. Yeah. So there was a there was a, a photo that I guess leaked out of the last conference meeting, which I guess happens from time to time. But, you know, we do these conference meetings and leaders present stuff. They put slides up and. Just a really telling slide about how much um, how, how difficult this year is going to be on on some of these fish, fiscal issues. So, and I don't know if these are promises that Kevin McCarthy has made. These are sort of aspirational. But my sense is a lot of members are taking these goals or whatever they are as promises. And so we'll have to see um, how whether he's held to them because they're pretty far fetched in my in my mind. And some of these things we have heard, you know, the, the slide reveals that they're going to put forward a, a, you know, a budget resolution that balances in 10 years. That's fine. You know, we've done that kind of thing before, but it's not easy to pass a budget. Um, you got to do a lot of ugly stuff to get into balance within 10 years. And given the narrow margin that we have in the house, that could be hard. The the other one that you hear a lot about is they talked about, they're going to go back to FY 22, uh, discretionary spending levels. That's basically going back two years. Um, pretty significant cuts in discretionary spending that may end up needing to hit defense, which has always been like a non-starter for Republicans. Now, obviously, there's a little bit more of a, um, a conversation about how much we spend on defense in the Republican Party and whether that's still like where members are. I don't know. But you sure got a lot of defense hawks still who aren't going to love cutting defense. You do, but I think McCarthy um, has has made it clear that, you know, he's open to some of those conversations and, um, you know, certainly other members like Jim Jordan, who's putting everything on the table. So I think you have to, I think you have to understand that while they may not be all that likely, they're like worth talking about and, and realizing that they're a little bit more real than they ever have been. Like, I don't want to overblow it um, because I do think, you know, we could get Democrats. I mean, I think there's enough Democrats that if anything, you know, came forward in particular with respect to defense that you would, you know, have a coalition there. But like, it's not, it's, it's something that none of us, we've always just like dismissed out of hand that there would be any kind of Republican opposition to these kinds of defense cuts. And I I don't think that's the case today. Yeah. I mean, so that's fair. I mean, they they still may be able to pass it. So look, they may be able to pass a budget with, with this sort of discretionary level and all the other stuff you have to do. But uh, I, 
I think my, my biggest takeaway is the promises that are being made on, on fiscal, on, on discretionary spending um, are just not going to yield an outcome. Um, they are going to they are, these appropriations bills are always hard to pass. They are going to be harder to pass when you are making these huge deep cuts with such a small majority. They're also going to be really hard to pass if you have an open amendment process. Like I said, if there's a bunch of members offering amendments, both Republicans and Democrats, you've actually, I've actually heard a bunch of Democrats say they're really excited about this open amendment process. That's because they're going to have a chance to tank the bills. And they're going to make Republicans take lots of really ugly votes. And there's going to be stuff that's going to pass, and then Republicans won't be able to vote for the final bill. So I just think that this appropriations process is going to run aground really fast, which is bad because if you continue looking at this slide that they put up in the conference meeting, everything they're going to do uh, as it relates to funding the government and raising the debt limit all seem to be tied to this notion that they're going to be able to enact these deep sweeping cuts on appropriations bills. Um, one, they say they're not even going to negotiate with the Senate unless the Senate, the Democratic-run Senate, also adopts a budget at that same spending level, which is just like crazy town. Like that's never going to happen. Um, so if you're not even going to willing to negotiate with the Senate until they pass 12 bills at your spending level, when you're probably not even going to pass 12 bills at your spending level, I don't know how they expect uh, an outcome on that. So, I mean, they do say they, they hope to do a CR uh, before September 30th, which I found interesting that they're basically saying they're going to punt on actually funding the government when the whole thing is about enacting this. But they're just setting up an expectation in the House. Um, and again, maybe this is just like an opening bid and members get the joke on that. I, I don't get the sense that's how they see this. I think they see this as Kevin McCarthy is promising to really dig in on really deep spending cuts and willing to mm -hmm. shut down the government to get them. Uh, that just seems yeah. like, it, my, my, I guess I don't think they're even going to end up with a product to negotiate with the Senate on, let alone be able to have leverage to come up with an outcome on it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think McCarthy is very serious about this. Um, I think, you know, he outlined some of the ways that he thought he might be able to accomplish this, talking about working really closely with Senate Republicans to maybe get their buy-in on some of what they're doing and some of the cuts that they're looking to make. Like, I could see a Senator Scott, you know, coming in and, and kind of being on board with some of these things. He's indicated he's open to this. Um, I think that, you know, if the government does end up shutting down, the tactic of, you know, maybe trying to force something to happen in the Senate is like such a long shot. And like, you know, we've we've just kind of seen this movie before, like House Republicans are going to be left with the check, like they're going to be the ones who are at fault for shutting down the government, sort of no matter how many things that they're able to negotiate with Senate Republicans on the front end. Like if that's the outcome, I don't really think no, anyone cares. Yeah, but I mean, Senate Republicans are in charge. So like, you know, well, I guess the argument is if there's a slim enough majority in the Senate, you know, that they can, you know, enact some kind of failures or, or push some kind of failures in the budgetary process on the Senate side. Sure. It's just, look, I, I, I think they're going to, this whole idea is, is, is predicated upon the idea that they're going to have a marker in the House that they've passed, like all these budget, all these appropriations bills, which haven't been passed, you know, on time in years. And so like, like I appreciate the enthusiasm that this is this is the year that they're going to get it done, but my expectation is this is just going to uh, hit a wall pretty quickly. Like they may be able to get a small handful of 
appropriations bills done, but I will be shocked if they're able to get all of them done. And at that point, what are you turning around and negotiating with the Senate on? Like, what is your leverage? You haven't passed anything. And maybe, I don't think the Senate's probably going to pass much of anything, but they're sure as heck not going to pass 12 appropriations bills at this dramatic low house level that they seem to be demanding that they do. Um, But that's like, so that's a government shutdown angle to it, um, which is just, you know, destructive and disruptive and not good. But the much bigger you know, consequence issue is the debt limit. And all of this seems to be um, uh, the frame for how they're going to negotiate the debt limit as well. And that's where I'm also super concerned. Like, you know, if, if a debt limit increase is predicated upon the House being able to assert that it has cut spending and it's going to demand that those things be enacted for a debt limit increase, which is, I think, what they're saying, that they won't increase the debt limit unless there are these deep cuts, which, again, I'm skeptical the House can even do, but let alone demand that the Senate do. Um, I'm a little nervous that they are making promises and setting expectations that they just can't keep. Yeah, and they're also just saying things like, well, you know, we're not going to... um you know, un- until Democrats secure the border, like we won't raise a debt limit. Okay, well, like, what does that mean? So, you know, th- un- until, you know, these, this laundry list of things are done, like, it- it's kind of just, it's not going to get them anywhere. Those aren't, I mean, they're not negotiating from any real place when they say, you know, broad statements, like, you know, we must secure the border until this, that or the other. Yeah, th- there's, there seems to be this. So like, I-, I was deeply involved in the 2011 debt limit standoff and fight where we did get a bunch of concessions for a debt limit increase. We, you know, we came out very quickly, Boehner said, um, if we're going to raise a debt limit, it's got to come with an equal number of spending cuts for however much we increase it. Long drawn out fight with Obama ended with, um, you know, a, a decent solution, um, not quite as bold as we had hoped, but but got it done. Um, we ran that play. It was mildly successful. In the five or six or however many it is debt limit increases since then, Democrats have sort of gotten smart to that and said, like, we're not going to negotiate with you on this. Like, you have to increase the debt limit. We're not going to give you anything for it. But Republicans still seem to be operating under this assumption that they can get something for it. Um, that's a tough place to be. It's also much tougher to when you realize there is no way Republicans are going to be able to increase the debt limit on their own. That means they're going to need Democratic votes. That means Democrats are probably going to be the ones that ask for something if anyone is asking for something. When you're in the majority and you have to go to the minority for votes, they typically don't do it for free. Now, maybe in this case, Democrats' only price tag is just do a clean debt limit increase. But the idea that they're going to be able to insist upon things from the minority and then get the minority to vote for it seems a little far-fetched to me. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I have low expectations on it. I guess all I'm saying is I'm a little worried about how this is going to get resolved. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. Um, you know, I, I, we've got a long way to go. There's going to be a lot of machinations. And maybe it's good for the House to kind of run these plays early and realize that they're stuck and realize they have no other option. I will just say, I, I think increasing the debt limit is important. I think there are, are needed cuts to spending. Like I, I'm, I'm on board with that. I'm just kind of talking about it in sort of a realist, pragmatist way about like what's possible in terms of how the House is run. And I'm a little worried that the plan, as it's been set out or maybe even promised to members, is pretty pretty unrealistic. Yeah. And not, not only that, you add on top of that Freedom Caucus members who are saying, you know, they're going, they're not going to take anything off the table. They're going to, um, you know, 
potentially oust the speaker uh, if he fails to enact these cuts. I mean, that's just another wrinkle. Yeah, tons of pressure on on McCarthy to deliver. So uh, there's this other sort of undercurrent of, okay, well, if that's not going to work, what are they going to do? And this is where uh, I want to do a bit of a, 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 a mild dive. I don't want to call it a deep dive. Um, into a procedure in the House called the discharge petition. Uh, you talk to enough people and they'll say, well, don't worry, they'll just raise the debt limit by discharge petition, as though that is a simple thing to do. And I just want to talk through a little bit of how that actually works and why that's not just such a simple thing to do, both procedurally, but also maybe even more to the point politically. Um, and we can talk about this a little bit. So um, just at the most basic level, a discharge petition, um, that is a mechanism to force a vote in the House on a bill. It is, it, it is designed for something that has been stuck in committee and a majority of the House wants to vote on it, but leadership isn't bringing it up. And there's the, this idea that you can sign a petition and it will bring up a vote on it. Um, so how many people would have to sign this petition? Two hundred. Good, good question. Two, 218 people. If 218, a simple majority of the House, sign this petition, they can, they can trigger a vote. Um, and that seems to be like kind of the, where the conversation has been stopping. But there's just a lot more, more to it. So let me, let me back everybody up on this. Um, a discharge petition is a pretty lengthy, slow process. Um, difficult to execute. It is basically typically used by the minority as a tool to try to circumvent leadership in the House. Um, you hear it all the time. The Republicans are, won't bring up our bill or Democrats won't bring up our bill. So we're going to do a discharge petition. And they almost never work because they're typically only signed by the minority party. It is considered um, an act of bad faith if you're in the majority to sign a discharge petition because it basically means like you're working against the team, you're working against leadership, um, you're trying to undermine us. So, you know, it's, it's, it's tough in general to just ask a Republican to, to sign a discharge petition. There is a lot of chatter that sort of mainstream, moderate Republicans, whatever you want to call them, will sign a discharge petition and, and spare us of this, this trouble. Um, but, um, again, let me, let me back up into like how this works. So it's a slow process. Um, to use a discharge petition, a bill has to be introduced in this scenario, a bill to increase the debt limit. Um, at that point, a bill has to be sitting in committee. So once a bill is introduced, it gets referred to a committee. It needs to be sitting in committee for 30 legislative days. Maybe the most important word there, legislative days, not calendar days. So uh, 30 legislative days can actually take like two or three months. And one thing to note as well, we're not entirely sure when this fight's going to happen. We have no idea when the debt limit is actually going to be done. So you're working on this. Uh, you're trying to hit a moving target here. And we'll get a better sense of like when the deadline is as the year gets going. But, you know, as of right now, we are thinking it is sometime in the fall. Um, but, you know, that's very up in the air. It could be late summer, it could be late fall, you know, it could be something they have to do before August recess or runs into August recess because it's going to hit, you know, the beginning of September. Um, so to use this for that, you have to have a bit of foresight 
to introduce a bill long before you ever get to the deadline because it has to sit in committee, like I said, for 30, for 30 legislative days. Um, now, th that doesn't, you know, when, so when the House is not in session, um, that doesn't count. However, we typically don't ever adjourn anymore. And so when we're out of session, we do things called pro forma days every third day. Um, so if they do go away for, you know, two weeks at a time for like Easter break or whatever, you know, they'll still probably get a couple days that, that hit it. So point being, you would need to go ahead and, and introduce that, um, somewhat quickly. Once you've hit 30 days, only then can you start a discharge petition. So it's not as though you could introduce the bill and then just start getting signatures. It has to wait 30 days for you to, to do a discharge petition. And under this um, scenario, you would you would need basically every Democrat to sign it, um, and you know whatever handful of Republicans. Um, there's no going over 218. There's no piling on. There's no like let's get it up to 280. It's just once it hits 218, a discharge petition has been triggered. Um, doesn't immediately um, come up for a vote. Uh, it then has to sit for seven legislative days on the calendar. Uh, and at that point, after seven legislative days, any signer of that petition can come forward and notice to the House that they intend uh, to trigger it and, and demand a vote. And at that point, the Speaker has two days to to schedule the bill. Um, so if you back that up, you know, you're talking 40, nearly 40 legislative days needed to to, you know, get that in play. Um, and then there are a couple ways it can actually be considered. Um, typically what ends up happening is when a, a uh, discharge petition is getting close to getting the requisite numbers, it looks like they're going to be able to trigger a vote, leadership tends to step in. And they say, all right, all right, all right, we'll bring up your bill, don't do the discharge petition, we'll, we'll pass a rule, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it up. Um, if that scenario is unlikely to happen, um, people doing a discharge petition can actually do, and this is typically how it ends up working, they would actually do a discharge petition on a rule. They would, they would uh, file a discharge petition to basically set the terms of debate. The reason they want to do that is so that when the bill comes up, they can control it. They can make sure that there aren't any amendments designed to kill their bill. They probably want to do a, a closed rule. Um, so, uh, do a di to do a discharge petition on a rule, it has to sit out for seven legislative days itself. So what you typically will see is when you get to about day 23 on the bill sitting in committee, the discharge petition uh, supporters will also then file a rule um, that would trigger the bill to come to the floor itself. Um, this is very basic stuff, but to bring a bill to the floor, you typically have to have what we call a rule bill that sets the term of debate. So they would trigger, they would, they would introduce that, wait seven more days, and then they would actually sign a discharge on that rule, which would then bring the underlying bill up for a vote. Gets a little complicated, um, but that's the general process where it's going to take a while, you have to get a bunch of people to sign it, and it has to sit out for a long time. Um, and, the, you know, at that point, that's when pressure starts to build, and that's when the political angle comes into it. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. So all of these hurdles to even get here to be able to even potentially consider this discharge petition, 
um, you know, not even factoring in the political challenges that would that we would be facing or that Democrats would be facing to get this done. So there, I think there's two important political dynamics. One, under this scenario, the House would have to, so say this works, say they get a debt limit passed through the House through a discharge petition. There's no discharge petition in the Senate. This bill would still need 60 votes in the Senate, and they wouldn't be able to change it at all in the Senate if you want this to go become law. And so imagine if Republicans are, you know, digging in, they're not going to raise a debt limit without any type of spending cuts, you know, whatever negotiations are taking place. And in parallel, there is this debt limit or this discharge petition sitting out there, a public petition where people need to sign their names. It is not hard to imagine Senate Republicans slap, you know, uh, locking arms with the House and saying they're not going to bring up a debt limit increase that doesn't have spending cuts attached to it and saying if that discharge petition passes, we won't vote for that. I'm not saying they will, but like you can imagine how that pre- political pressure with this thing just sitting out there kind of ticking um, would would be difficult. So just keep in mind, you pass a discharge petition on the debt limit through the House um, it has to then get 60 votes in the Senate. And so, you know, the idea is like, would you then try to negotiate a debt limit increase through the Senate and what could get 60 votes and then introduce that in the House and discharge that? But then remember, it takes a long time. This isn't the type of thing where if you got some type of deal, some type of negotiation with the Senate, where at least we know this could pass the Senate, even if Republican leadership doesn't want to bring it up in the House, that you could just do a discharge petition on that and like bring it to the floor. You have to have two or three months of foresight to be able to to, to lock that down. Well, and I want to back up a little bit too, because I think we're also kind of operating under the assumption that, you know, Hakeem Jeffries would be willing to get his caucus to align on the fact that they would all agree to this discharge petition, right? I mean, I... I don't know exactly what kind of leader he's going to be. I can tell you, I think if Nancy Pelosi was there, there's no way, um, you know, credit where credit is due. She's a master operator. I think there's no I think she excels at, you know, allowing Republicans um, to kind of fail and stepping back and letting it happen. And I think, um, you know, that would probably be the tact that she would take as opposed to kind of coming to the rescue and doing this discharge petition. Um, so, I mean, it, I don't think that we can, you know, really go there and say that, that there'll be an appetite in the Democratic caucus yeah. to do this. I think it's an open question of whether they're going to want to make it easy on Republicans to do this. You know, I, I mean, I do think that they want a clean debt limit increase. I think they've made that pretty clear. But like how much they're just going to make it, um, you know, smooth, a smooth process that they're not going to ask for anything in, in return. Um, you know, they gotta have, they're going to have to work with these, you know, moderate Republicans to do that. Um, but I do just want to like hit, hit for a second on the political pressure that will exist on these House Republicans to not sign this bill, uh, this discharge petition. And what I imagine will be intense pressure on Kevin McCarthy to prevent some of his members from signing onto it. So let's remember, like Republicans are saying they're going to want to like play hardball here. And so what I think that means is there's going to be a lot of pressure on uh, these moderates to kind of keep their powder dry. Don't sign it. Let us see what we can do. Let us see if we can negotiate. Let us see if, if there's something that we can get done. Like, okay, you say you want to sign it. Like, okay, but hold off. 
that's that's like you know that's giving them a little room to run but it gets back to the problem of like you don't know exactly when this is going to need to be done you don't know exactly like it's hard to say um, just give us a minute because it takes time to then schedule a bill and we could be talking about walking right up to the deadline because um, again after you hit 218 votes uh, 218 signatures um, you know, it's got to wait seven legislative days and then it could take another couple of days to, to schedule it. So it's not like you can just like wait until the last minute, strike a deal and go. Um, but then again, the, the, just the immense pressure that McCarthy and, and the, the conference will probably be putting on these people not to sign this discharge petition doing, I, it wouldn't surprise me if you have people saying like, if you sign a discharge petition, we're going to strip you of your committees. Like I, I, I expect given all that McCarthy went through that he's going to have to be expected to go to war to stop this um, or risk his speakership or risk, his, risk his speakership. Like if you allow, and, and I mean, this is the, you know, the sort of unsaid thing. Like this is kind of perceived as the leadership sort of like, you know, their, their backup plan is like to allow this to kind of slide by them. And if it's perceived that he like wants this to slide by him and get done, you know, behind their back, um, you know, I think there'll be hell to pay for that. So he's going to have to like work really hard to stop them from signing it with no other real option probably at that point. Um, so and as we have members that, you know, are retiring or, um, you know, some, some members that are middle of the road. I mean, I, I do see some defections. I mean, and I don't know, you know, what, what tools he has to stop that. I mean, it just could be, uh, yeah, I don't know. He, he may not, he may not be able to stop it, but I just think it's not so easy to just say, well, these, these six guys are going to sign this discharge petition because so I just think they're going to come under incredible fire. I mean, this is like the big standoff of this Congress. You know, this podcast is supposed to be about like all the big friction points. This is the friction point. This is the big thing. I mean, there may be government shutdowns, but I just think this is what the, the, the biggest fight is going to be about with the biggest consequences politically for Republicans, politically for Kevin McCarthy, but also obviously for the, for the economy. I mean, it, it may be a situation where you're getting really close to the deadline and markets start freaking out. Um, and at that point, like people are just like, I'm going to end this craziness. Like we're doing a discharge petition. Um, but my point 52 again, 52 days later. Yeah. My, my point <laughs> is just like, it's not a quick thing that you can just like pull the trigger on at any moment and, and, and resolve the issue. Um, so I just think procedurally people need to appreciate that this is slow. It's difficult. It is designed to be hard to use. It almost never works because leadership, it's just such a, you know, a never, you know, the thing you never do is to sign a uh, discharge petition when you're in the majority. So you're, you're basically working actively against your leadership is how it's perceived. Um, and, and yeah, to that point, just the incredible political pressure that will exist to discourage um, House members from signing it, whether or not, even if you do get it through, whether the Senate is just going to eat whatever was introduced four months earlier, you know, who knows what the scenario is, you know, do they negotiate something in the Senate that maybe they can pass, but that's different than what is in the discharge petition. And then you're kind of stuck nowhere. Um, just not clean, not simple. I just hope that there's a lot of thought given to how we get out of this mess. Debt limits were always the hardest thing for us. Like there were so many times we're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how we're going to get it. We always did. Um, but we had a little more breathing room in like, you know, as, as speaker to figure it out. And I just don't know how much breathing room uh, McCarthy is going to have. So long story short, uh, I'm a little nervous about this. Uh, I hope that um, we avoid drama on it, but I'm, I'm 
pretty confident this is going to get ugly pretty quickly. Um, discharge petition may be how it gets done. Um, it just, uh, it's not quite so simple. Yeah, I think it's going to be tricky. Um, I want to I want to underscore one topic that we, we talked about a little bit earlier with respect to negotiating the debt limit, because I think it's lost on a lot of people that McCarthy is going to have to go to Democrats to get their votes. He's not going to be able to do this alone with his conference. And so, you know, obviously he set up a lot of unrealistic budget um, I guess we'll call them promises at this point. We're not exactly sure um, commitments, uh, proposals for the budget. Um, but, you know, those are going to be really, really challenging when you're in a position where on one hand you have your conference that is demanding these cuts or your speakership. And on the other, you're having to negotiate with Democrats to get their votes. There is no such thing as a debt limit increase that gets 218 Republicans. Like just stop right there. Like, you could do all the the deep cut spending cuts. You could do the ba- budget that balances in ten years, and there just are not two hundred eighteen votes. Like there's just so many of them who will never vote to increase the debt limit ever. So yeah, he he starts. You know, we we've talked about on here like the speaker's power comes from his ability to get two hundred eighteen votes. That certainly is relevant as it relates to negotiating. Like, how does Kevin McCarthy come in and demand things on a debt limit when he has no cards to play? Because he, he, Hakeem Jeffries knows he does not have 218 votes to do it. Okay, everybody, we only have a few episodes left on this limited run podcast series. If there are any topics uh, that you all want us to cover, uh, feel free to tweet at us. I'm at Annalise KB and uh, Brendan is at Brendan Buck. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you and hopefully uh, you can tune in next time to our future episode of Control. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.